This episode is brought to you by Seed. Probiotics are most effective when they make it to your colon, alive. That's why Seed developed a patented two-in-one capsule that safeguards viability of its DSO-1 daily symbiotic through digestion to deliver the maximum dose to your colon. No refrigeration necessary. Visit seed.com slash Spotify and use code SPOTIFY25 to get 25% off your first month. When I'm in clinic, I ask this one simple question many, many times a day when somebody brings in their sick kid. And the question is, has your child had a fever? It's such a simple question, but the answer never seems to be like just a plain old yes or no. I hear so many different answers. And the answers I get, they clearly reveal there are a lot of myths, fear, and confusion about fever. Some of the more common things I hear are, his temperature is usually 97.6 and he was 99, so I know he has a fever. And then I had one mom say, yes, my child's fever was 109. And it was so hard for me to keep a straight face. I said, uh, okay, do you mean do you mean 100.9? Nope, she said 109. I got to tell you that is not possible. That kid was sitting and smiling at me. And then of course, we doctors, we ask, did you give your child any medication for the fever? And aside from hearing the phrase, yes, I also hear things like, no, I wanted you to see his fever. And let me just tell you right now, we will believe you. You don't have to try and keep your child with a fever. And it's pretty common for me to hear also, no, I thought the fever was going to help him fight off infection. Fever is really complex. And it's scary because a fever can be the sign of a really benign thing, like a regular old cold virus, or less often, it can be a sign of something really bad. I could spend several episodes talking about fever. We know so much about it. And that's what I'm going to share with you today. I'm Dr. Wendy Hunter, and I'm the pediatrician next door. I'm that doctor friend you call for practical advice about your kid's health. I mix the science of medicine with the reality of parenting. Before I really get into it, there are a few facts that are really important for everyone to know about fever. For example, fever in a baby during the first month of life is a true emergency, and that baby needs to go straight to the emergency room immediately. And I could explain why and the ins and outs of fever in newborns, but what I really want to do in this episode is explore the physiology of fever. This is the stuff that doctors know that help them to guide their assessment of an illness. It's the background knowledge about fever that I would share with you if I had time during an office visit. Because when you understand how doctors think about fever, you can make some really good decisions on your own about when and how to treat a child's fever and when you should worry about them. So let's consider some of the ideas we have about fever and the truth about those ideas. First, you may have read or heard this idea that fever is beneficial. So that's going to leave you wondering whether you should treat a fever with medicine or whether you should just let the fever go. So yes, it's absolutely true. Our body fights off infection better when we have a fever. Partly that's because some viruses and bacteria can't grow when our body is too hot. And partly that's because our body's immune defenses work better. So for you scientists, lab science shows that white blood cells are more mobile when we're hot. There are more T cells and immune cells increase their ability to engulf disease particles. Remember that's called phagocytosis. 
that's when the surrounding cell like grabs onto molecules and, and virus particles and brings them into the cell. You might remember this from biology. And raising your temperature to fight off infection, it has to be natural because lizards, fish, cockroaches, and even leeches get a fever to fight off infection. But as far as I know, only humans take medicine to get rid of their fever. So is it more natural to let the fever go? It's tempting to let your body do its natural thing and fight off an infection on its own, but it turns out it's not necessary. So researchers at King's College London considered this question and they wondered whether treating fever will actually make an illness last longer. In their review, the British researchers reviewed five studies that evaluated whether taking anti-fever medicine made it take longer to recover from an illness. There were some limitations to these studies, but taken together, they do suggest that treating a fever does not make an illness last longer or for the illness to be worse. So there doesn't seem to be any harm in treating a fever, but is there a benefit? Is it better to treat the fever? The compelling thing that makes me want to treat a fever is that in kids, we tend to see when a child has a fever, they don't feel very well, so they don't drink, and it's harder to keep them hydrated. When you get a fever, you lose more fluids and you become dehydrated more easily, and then you feel terrible, so then you won't drink, and then you just get sicker and sicker. So regarding this question about whether to let a fever go to help the immune system, it doesn't look like taking fever medication makes you worse. And it can make a child really whiny and annoying when they have a fever. That's why I lean on the side of giving medication. The next concern I hear from parents is they say they gave medication for a fever and it worked at first. The kid did start acting much better, but then the fever came back. And this freaks most parents out. I don't know why this surprises people so much. So send me a message and let me know what you're thinking. Then maybe I can ease a parent's concern a little bit better. Here's what I'm thinking. When I hear a fever went away and came back, first, I'm sure most everyone knows that acetaminophen, ibuprofen, or whichever brand of these you give your child, it doesn't treat the cause of the fever. It just covers the fever up. It's not surprising that the fever comes back when the medicine wears off because the reason for the fever hasn't gone away. Ibuprofen, which is sold as the brand name Advil or Motrin, it generally lasts about six hours. And acetaminophen, which is the generic name for Tylenol, lasts about four hours. Oftentimes, the fever is going to come back when the medication wears off. It's easier to understand why the fever returns and to understand all the symptoms associated fever if we know how a body makes fever. Here's what's going on. Our body temperature is controlled by the hypothalamus in the brain. That's our thermostat. Picture the thermostat in your house while I explain this. Substances called pyrogens, like pyro as in having to do with fire, it's the same root as pyromaniac, they float around in your blood and they cause fever. Some pyrogens are the waste products for viruses or bacteria. It's like literally sweat and poop from infectious organisms like bacteria and viruses. And some pyrogens are made from your own immune system trying to fight off a germy invader. Pyrogens float around in the body during an infection. They don't actually go into your brain, but they do trigger a chemical message that goes to the brain. It's like if you're downstairs and you yell upstairs to your kid to turn the temperature up on the upstairs thermostat. This action changes the temperature set point in the hypothalamus. 
The brain then tells the body to turn on its heater to raise the body temperature because the temperature is too low. It's like when your heater comes on after you turn up the thermostat. In this case, heat in your body is made by things like shivering. And in kids, their blood vessels close off in their hands and feet in order to push blood to the center of their body to increase their core temperature. So then, of course, a shivering, clammy child is gonna look really ill and their hands and feet might turn blue. And this is part of the normal reaction to create a fever. It can be okay as long as those symptoms go away when you treat the fever. During this process, a child's gonna feel cold because their actual temperature is below where the brain thinks it should be. So they're gonna have the chills. Once the temperature of the body gets up to their new set point, say it's 103 degrees, the child might actually feel kind of good and stop shivering. So now they're gonna have a fever that you can measure, but they might not feel that bad. Then when you give a fever reducing medication, the medicine works by turning the set point in the hypothalamus of the brain back down. Now the child's body temperature is gonna to be too warm. It's warmer than the set point, And they're gonna feel like they're too hot. So in order to cool their body back down to the new set point, the child's gonna start sweating and their blood vessels will open up to release heat from the tops of their skin. And that's gonna make the child look flushed or maybe rosy cheeked. That's why kids look so crappy when they have a fever. And as soon as you get to the doctor's office or the emergency room, they look fantastic. But don't worry, they're gonna look sad and icky as soon as you get back home. The other thing you might've noticed is that when a child has a high fever, they breathe fast and their heart rate is really high. Usually sometime around midnight on my overnight shifts in the pediatric emergency room, parents show up with their feverish child worried about their fast heart rate and difficulty breathing only to find that their child looks fantastic an hour later as soon as the fever medicine kicks in. It's kind of cool. Kids have this unique physiology that fools parents into thinking they're sicker than they really are. And I might be crazy, but I have wondered if this is an evolutionary adaptation to make parents pay closer attention when their kids are sick. Well, it might be true, but we can't prove it. Even when they are healthy and feeling great, kids have a faster heart rate and they breathe more rapidly than adults. And kids seem to be more sensitive to factors that raise these rates like temperature, pain, fear, and anxiety. When a child has a fever, they breathe faster and their heart beats faster for lots of reasons that aren't totally understood. What we do know is that it's a normal response to fever and it's caused in part by their blood vessels opening up, which makes the heart pump harder to circulate more blood. Fever also increases the child's metabolic rate so it makes every process in the body work harder. Scientists have actually measured that there's a direct relationship between pulse, which is heart rate, and body temperature. And the general rule of thumb is that the heart rate increases 10 beats per minute for every one degree Celsius change in temperature. However, babies that are under two months of age, they don't follow this rule at all. Young infants have an immature nervous system and they don't have the mechanisms for responding appropriately to fever. This is one of the reasons that young kids can go from looking perfectly fine to becoming very ill very quickly. They may not have that I'm super ill appearance that an older baby or a child gets when they're sick. So pediatricians know this and we're really cautious about young babies we're so much more likely to do blood tests on a young baby. And I think this sometimes confuses parents because they think that we're going overboard with these little ones. 
As we talked about, fever also causes kids to breathe fast. Breathing faster allows heat to be released through something called pulmonary gas convection. This means the body exchanges hot air that they breathe out for cooler air that they pull into their lungs. And when kids breathe fast, they also breathe out more humid air and they lose more water. So they're going to need to drink more fluids to stay hydrated when they have a fever. When kids breathe faster due to fever, it's no wonder that a child can look like they have pneumonia. And I hear this a lot from parents. A child with fever can look like they're having difficulty breathing because fever stimulates the respiratory muscles to increase their rate and the depth of breathing. In animals, you'll see this looks like panting. That's how animals blow off their heat. In the clinic room, I can often make a pretty good assessment of a child just by looking across the room and watching their breathing pattern. In a child with fever from a normal, minor childhood illness like the stomach flu or a cold virus, any anti-fever medication is going to bring their heart rate and their breathing rate back to normal within about an hour or so. And if fast breathing or a fast heart rate continues after you've given medicine, this is a sign that you need to take them to the doctor pretty quickly. We talked about why kids can look so bad when they have a fever, and we talked about how fevers work. So now you've probably come to the conclusion that forms most doctor's advice, and that is it's one of our pediatric mantras we say, treat the kid, not the fever. If your kid looks sick, give them medicine, and if they don't look sick, just leave them alone. Maybe give them something to drink. You know how we ask you how high the fever is? We don't really care that much. I think that mom that told me her child had a 109 fever was kind of trying to impress me, but we don't think that much about how high a fever gets. Kids can get really high fevers. We think more about the pattern of the fever. And again, that's probably enough to talk about on its own episode. In general, a fever that improves after medicine or the child is playful, like kind of in the middle of the day, and the fever comes back after the child's been napping or later in the evening, that's a pattern that suggests a virus infection. That should run its course, and we don't really worry about that pattern of fever. A high spiking fever all day long in a child that continues to look tired or sick, that's much more concerning. The other thing is that the presence or absence of other symptoms, that matters to us. So what I mean by that is a kid who has a 104-degree fever who has cold symptoms that doesn't really scare me. What really scares me is a kid who has a fever of something like 101 for three days and they don't have any other symptoms because I don't know where that fever is coming from and that's what worries me. Before I ever get into details about the pattern of the fever and other symptoms, I first make sure the child actually has a fever. And that's one of the main reasons we ask you to tell us how high the fever was. On that note, if you don't take the temperature with a thermometer, that's totally fine. I often call this the mom thermometer and it's way more accurate. Even rigorous research studies have proven this. Touching your child's forehead or back of the neck and diagnosing a fever is completely legitimate to us pediatricians. We will totally believe you. What's not legitimate is when somebody says their child is normally 97.8 and so they think that if their kid has a 99 temperature, that's a fever. The reason why this logic doesn't fly is one of the most interesting things I've learned this past year. 
Here it is. The average human body temperature has been dropping over the past 200 years. And here's that story. The first real medical thermometer was created back in 1867. And those first thermometers took almost five minutes to register a temperature. There were temperature measuring devices before that time, but they didn't really give you an actual number. And after 1867, thermometers basically did not change for more than 100 years. The history of fever and thermometers is really fascinating and it's definitely worth reading about if you're interested. But I'll tell you what's even more interesting is the answer to the question about what is a normal temperature and what is a fever. And this may not be something you've ever thought about before. I know you all know that the standard 98.6 degree is what we always quote. And that was a number that was made famous by a German physician in 1868. It was around the same time that thermometers were first used. And we've been quoting that number ever since. The real average temperature today is lower and it has been dropping. There was a recent study of 25,000 British patients and they found that the average temperature today is actually 97.9 and that changes throughout the day. After this study came out, another group of researchers at Stanford thought maybe this study was wrong and that the only reason the average temperature dropped was because our thermometers today are more accurate. So this group at Stanford, they found three data sets from different periods in history. The first set was from the Civil War Union Army veterans from a time period between 1862 and 1930. The second set of data they had was from the U.S. National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, and those data were from 1971 to 1975. Then there was a final set of data that was from adults who went to the Stanford healthcare system between 2007 and 2017. These scientists' analysis of the human body temperatures from these three sets of measurements confirmed, first, that body temperature generally is higher among younger people, females, and people with larger body size. So not surprising, but that means that some people have a generally higher temperature than another part of our population. They also found that body temperature has been decreasing by 0.05 Fahrenheit every decade for the entire span of the data that they analyzed. They are sure this is true because of the way they sorted the data and, you know, like statistics and stuff like that. Anyway, this research was peer-reviewed, so we feel pretty good that this data is true. But why? Why is this happening? Our average body temperature is most likely going down because our metabolic rate has gone down over the past centuries. First, there is a population-wide decrease in inflammation. Inflammation in the body produces all kinds of proteins, cytokines for you smart kids, that rev up your metabolism and raise your temperature. Our health has improved a lot in the past 200 years because of improved medical treatment and better hygiene and access to more food. Plus, we have a lot more comfortable lives now. We have better control of our environmental temperatures, like from air conditioning and heating. So as a person, we don't have to expend as much energy to keep our body temperature up. Physiologically, we are actually different than we were in the past. We might think we're the same through human evolution, but we're not. Our bodies actually are changing in response to our environment. Even though the Stanford researchers are sure this cooling trend is true, nobody is going to update the definition of average body temperature because 
We know there's so much variability based on body size, gender, and time of day. So we're stuck with this definition of normal body temperature being 98.6, even though it's probably too high. However, we still generally consider a fever anything over 38 degrees Celsius, which is 100.4 Fahrenheit, because normal body temperatures can range up to 100.3 during the day. That is within the normal set point of our hypothalamus. It's permanently set to be happy anywhere from 97 to 100.3 without sending any signals to the body to make any changes to adapt the temperature. 100.3 is in the normal range of your body's temperature on any given day. What about the other side of this coin? Should you worry about a fever going too high? And what about it causing a seizure? Just as there are pyrogens or those heat producing substances we talked about, the body's temperature is never going to go too high because there are also substances called cryogens and they prevent temperatures from rising to dangerous levels in your body. A kid with a normal functioning brain will not have their temperature get too high. The only way for that to happen is some people have abnormal brain functioning or if a kid is left in an environment that's too hot, like inside a car, they can get overheated and that can be dangerous. Regarding seizures, again, that's a discussion for another episode because there's so much we know about seizures from fever. But I can reassure you, in kids who get seizures from having a fever, these tend to run in families and is not dangerous. The important thing to know is that you cannot prevent a seizure from happening. Even if you give medication to prevent a fever from coming on, whatever infection they have in their body, it's still going to release pyrogens and the human body is also going to release pyrogens. And we think that the seizure happens in response to these chemical signals as the temperature is going up. So you may not notice the fever coming on and you really can't prevent this process from happening. Now you have enough information to decide whether your kid has a fever and whether you want to treat that fever. But there's one last confusing part of this, and that is how much medication to give. It is totally a pet peeve of mine when parents give a half dose. It just doesn't work that way because of something called pharmacokinetics. That's the speed that medications work in your body. Again, I'm not gonna get into that, just trust me. Medicine needs to be dosed at an effective dose and the back of the bottle is not gonna be that helpful to you. Here are some of the questions I hear from parents about this. Are you supposed to dose based on weight or age and why? What if the bottle says one dose, but your pediatrician recommended something else? And how do you give medication to a big for age baby? You know, those fat kids. The answer to all of these questions is that a child's dose is based on their weight. That's it. That's the simple answer. Acetaminophen is dosed at 15 milligrams per kilogram of body weight and ibuprofen is dosed at 10 milligrams per kilogram. And the medication is gonna work best if you give the right dose. The medication table on the bottle or in any other place you find it, those are rounded off to make measuring the medication easy. The best way to find the effective and safe dose for your kid is to ask your pediatrician. Now here's the long answer. Infant and children's over-the-counter drugs are not really studied. Scientists do the best they can to determine precisely how a drug is handled in a child's body, and then they make a recommendation for a safe but effective dose. But determining a drug dose is really complicated because drugs behave differently in kids. 
kids' organ function is quirky. So for one thing, during their first years, kids' intestines don't absorb drugs as well as adults. Plus, you know how you see the ibuprofen dripping out of your child's mouth when you give it to them? Even the medication that's actually swallowed doesn't totally make it from the gut into the bloodstream. Then once the medication makes it into the bloodstream, many medicines are processed in the kidneys. And in kids, the kidneys have very low blood flow compared to adults. This low blood flow means that there's not very good filtering of drugs from the bloodstream, so more of the drug stays in the blood for longer. At birth, baby's kidneys get about 5% of the heart's output of blood. As compared to an adult, they get about 25% of blood flow to their kidneys. So this function not only is different from adults, but it actually is going to change all throughout childhood. Another reason babies handle drugs differently is their body's environment. That's different than adults. For example, adults are made up of about 90% water, but babies are only about 40% water. Babies have to be given drugs at a different dose per body weight than an adult because the medication is basically being diluted into a different volume of body fluid. Dosing drugs in young babies is made even more challenging because as they get older, their ability to absorb and break down drugs, that changes constantly. In fact, studies on the pharmacokinetics of drugs, there's that word again, that's how drugs are broken down in the body. They show a surprising variability between individual babies, even if they're the same age. And probably older adults like the elderly are in a similar state. Their ability to process drugs can be unique to an individual person, and it's based on their baseline kidney or liver function. And their metabolism changes over time too. So for anyone with a diagnosis of liver or kidney disease, there's actually a chart that we look at that tells us how to dose a drug based on a blood test for their different functions of their kidney. So for example, if somebody has impaired kidney function, we do a test called creatinine clearance, and that helps us decide what dose of the drug to use. Some drugs are so challenging to dose that pediatricians have the level of the drug in the baby's body tested sometimes every day until we get the right dose. Even then, the drug level has to be continuously monitored just to make sure that we have a therapeutic dose. Okay, so now I can answer the simple question, how do we choose a dose of ibuprofen or Tylenol? We can't dose based on an individual kid's kidney function or liver function or even their lean body mass. So Instead, we just use weight as a substitute measure for these combined effects. I've known 12-month-olds and almost three-year-olds who basically weigh the same amount, so you definitely cannot use age to determine a drug dose. The reason that a chart exists is because figuring out the dose involves so much math. Plus, you have to convert to the metric system. As for kids who weigh more than 100 pounds, they can max out at the regular adult dose. All right, here's my math example, and you can tune me out if you want. Ibuprofen, that's Motrin or Advil. It's given at a dose of 10 milligrams per kilogram. To give ibuprofen, that contains 100 milligrams in every five milliliters of fluid, you're gonna take, so for example, a 13 pound baby. You convert that to kilos. Now you have a 5.9 kilogram kid, and you multiply that by 10 milligrams per kilogram, so their dose of the drug is 59 milligrams. So how are you going to figure out how much to give? You divide the 59 milligrams by the 100 milligram per 5 ml, 
concentration of the ibuprofen and that gives you 2.95 mLs of ibuprofen. And that is a really tough dose to give. And that's why we just round up to three milliliters. That's why you need to ask your pediatrician to give you your dose. What about the kid that refuses to take medicine? I don't know what makes them think they know better than an adult. I don't know how three years of life experience trumps someone who gave birth. But anyway, I'm gonna talk about this topic in depth in a future episode. But for now, I want you to know your options are to use rectal acetaminophen. It's sold as the brand name Feverol. And often you need to ask the pharmacist for this medicine, but it doesn't need a prescription. You can also hide medicine in something irresistible like frosting or cookie dough, but don't pick something your kid loves because you might just make them hate it. The other thing you can try is there are chewable medications. The thing is, you don't want your kid to not trust you in the future, so be careful about hiding medication. You got to pick your battle here. Remember, treat the kid, not the fever, and the normal body temperature changes throughout the day, and that's fine. I would say the most important time to give medication is right before bed. So you can be pretty sure that a fever is going to come back at night and that's a good time to treat. Our body's normal drop in cortisol at nighttime, that will often unmask a fever that might've been gone all day. And my choice is ibuprofen because it lasts longer and it's definitely safer than acetaminophen, which is Tylenol. It's much less likely to cause an accidental overdose. And the last thing I want to share is that I haven't had a thermometer in my house since my youngest child was six months old. You just don't need one. You can tell if your child has a fever just by touching them or looking at them. Forehead and ear thermometers are so inaccurate that I just don't trust their reading anyway. For babies though, you need to have a rectal thermometer at home. It's the most accurate. And then for older kids, you can either have an oral thermometer or just use your own hand. Send me your tips about how to get kids to take their medicine or your questions and stories about fever. You can find me on Instagram at the pediatrician next door, and I'll cover more about fevers in another episode. For more from the pediatrician next door, find me on the web at pediatriciannextdoorpodcast.com. If you've got a question about the weird things kids do, send an email to hello at pediatriciannextdoorpodcast.com for a chance to hear your voice on the show. I'm Dr. Wendy Hunter, and I'm the pediatrician next door. This show is produced by Red Rock Music. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever it is you're listening. I'll be back next time with more.